Section 9 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Read by Michael Yorshaw. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1, by James Boswell. Section 9. Though Johnson was often solicited by his friends to make a complete list of his writings, and talked of doing it, I believe with a serious intention that they should all be collected on his own account, he put it off from year to year, and at last died without having done it perfectly. I have one in his own handwriting which contains a certain number. I indeed doubt if he could have remembered every one of them, as they were so numerous, so various, and scattered in such a multiplicity of unconnected publications. Nay, several of them published under the names of other persons to whom he liberally contributed from the abundance of his mind. We must, therefore, be content to discover them, partly from information given to him by his friends, and partly from internal evidence. Note, while in the course of my narrative I enumerate his writings, I shall take care that my readers shall not be left to waver in doubt between certainty and conjecture with regard to their authenticity, and for that purpose shall mark with an asterisk those which he acknowledged to his friends, and with a dagger those which are ascertained to be his by internal evidence. When any other pieces are ascribed to him, I shall give my reasons. End of note. His first performance in the Gentleman's Magazine which for many years was his principal source for employment and support, was a copy of Latin verses in March 1738, addressed to the editor in so happy a style of compliment that Cave must have been destitute both of taste and sensibility had he not felt himself highly gratified. Ad Urbanum Urbane nullis fesse laboribus Urbane nullis victae calumniis Cui frante certum in erudita, perpetuo viret et virebit. Quid moliator gens imilantium, quid et minator solicitus parum, vacare solis perge musis, juxta animo studiisque felix. Linguae procacis plumbea spicula, fidens superbo frange silentio. Victrix perabstantes catervas sedulitas animosa tendet. Intende nervos fortis inanibus resurus olemnisibus emuli. Intende jam nervos habebis participes operae camuenas. Non ola musis pagina gratior, quam quae severis ludicra jungere, novit fadigamque nugis, utilibus recreare mentem. Texente nymphis certa licoride, rosae ruborem sic viola adjuat, imista sic iris refulget, etheris variata fucis. S.J. Note, a translation of this ode by an unknown correspondent appeared in the magazine for the month of May following. Hail urban, indefatigable man, unwearied yet by all thy useful toil. 
whom numberless slanderers assault in vain, whom no base calumny can put to foil, but still the laurel on thy learned brow flourishes fair and shall forever grow. What mean the servile imitating crew, what their vain blustering and their empty noise? Ne'er seek, but still thy noble ends pursue, unconquered by the rabble's venal voice. Still to the muse thy studious mind apply, happy in temper as in industry. The senseless sneerings of an haughty tongue, unworthy thy attention to engage, unheeded pass, and though they mean thee wrong, by manly silence disappoint their rage. Assiduous diligence confounds its foes, resistless though malicious crowds oppose. Exert thy powers, nor slacken in the course, thy spotless fame shall quash all false reports. Exert thy powers, nor fear a rival's force, but thou shalt smile at all his vain efforts. Thy labors shall be crowned with large success, the muse's aid thy magazine shall bless. No page more grateful to the harmonious nine than that wherein thy labors we survey, where solemn themes in fuller splendor shine, delightful mixture, blended with the gay, where in improving various joys we find a welcome respite to the wearied mind. Thus when the nymphs in some fair verdant mead of various flowers a beauteous wreath compose. The lovely violet's azure-painted head adds luster to the crimson-blushing rose. Thus splendid Iris, with her varied dye, shines in the ether and adorns the sky. Britain. End of note. It appears that he was now enlisted by Mr. Cave as a regular coadjutor in his magazine, by which he probably obtained a tolerable livelihood. At what time or by what means he had acquired a competent knowledge of both French and Italian I do not know, but he was so well skilled in them as to be sufficiently qualified for a translator. That part of his labor which consisted in emendation and improvement of the production of other contributors, like that employed in leveling ground, can be perceived only by those who had an opportunity of comparing the original with the altered copy. What we certainly know to have been done by him in this way was the debates in both Houses of Parliament under the name of the Senate of Lilliput, sometimes with feigned denominations of the several speakers, sometimes with denominations formed of the letters of their real names in the manner of what is called anagram, so that they might easily be deciphered. Parliament then kept the press in a kind of mysterious awe which made it necessary to have recourse to such devices. In our time it has acquired an unrestrained freedom, so that the people in all parts of the kingdom have a fair, open, and exact report of the actual proceedings of their representatives and legislators, which in our Constitution is highly to be valued, though unquestionably there has of late been too much reason to complain of the petulance with which obscure scribblers have presumed to treat men of the most respectable character and situation. This important article of the Gentleman's Magazine was, for several years, executed by Mr. William Guthrie, a man who deserves to be respectably recorded in the literary annals of this country. He was descended of an ancient family in Scotland, but having a small patrimony, 
and being an adherent of the unfortunate House of Stuart, he could not accept of any office in the state. He therefore came to London and employed his talents and learning as an author by profession. His writings in history, criticism, and politics had considerable merit. He was the first English historian who had recourse to that authentic source of information, the parliamentary journals. And such was the power of his political pen that at an early period government thought it worth their while to keep it quiet by a pension, which he enjoyed till his death. Johnson esteemed him enough to wish that his life should be written. The debates in Parliament, which were brought home and digested by Guthrie, whose memory, though surpassed by others who have since followed him in the same department, was yet very quick and tenacious, were sent by Cave to Johnson for his revision. And after some time, when Guthrie had attained a greater variety of employment, and the speeches were more and more enriched by the accession of Johnson's genius, it was resolved that he should do the whole himself from the scanty notes furnished by persons employed to attend in both houses of Parliament. Sometimes, however, as he himself told me, he had nothing more communicated to him than the names of the several speakers and the part which they had taken in the debate. Note, how much poetry he wrote I know not, but he informed me that he was the author of the beautiful little piece The Eagle and Robin Redbreast in the collection of poems entitled The Union, though it is there said to be written by Archibald Scott before the year 1600. End of note. Thus was Johnson employed during some of the best years of his life as a mere literary laborer for gain, not glory, solely to obtain an honest support. He, however, indulged himself in occasional little sallies, which the French so happily expressed by the term jeu d'esprit, and which will be noticed in their order in the progress of this work. But what first displayed his transcendent powers and gave the world assurance of the man, was his London, a poem in imitation of the third satire of Juvenal, which came out in May this year, and burst forth with a splendor, the rays of which will forever encircle his name. Boileau had imitated the same satire with great success, applying it to Paris, but an attentive comparison will satisfy every reader that he is much excelled by the English Juvenal. Oldham had also imitated it and applied it to London, all which performances concur to prove that great cities in every age and in every country will furnish similar topics of satire. Whether Johnson had previously read Oldham's imitation I do not know, but it is not a little remarkable that there is scarcely any coincidence found between the two performances, though upon the very same subject. The only instances are, in describing London as the sink of foreign worthlessness, the common shore where France does all her filth and odor pour, Oldham, the common shore of Paris and of Rome, Johnson, and no calling or profession comes amiss, a needy monsieur can be what he please, Oldham, all sciences a fasting monsieur knows, Johnson. The particulars which Oldham has collected, both as exhibiting the horrors of London and of the times contrasted with better days, are different from those of Johnson, and in general well chosen and well expressed. Note, 
I own it pleased me to find amongst them one trait of the manners of the age in London in the last century, to shield from the sneer of English ridicule, which was some time ago too common a practice in my native city of Edinburgh. If what I've said can't from the town affright consider other dangers of the night, when brickbats are from upper stories thrown, and emptied chamber pots come pouring down from garret windows, end of note. There are, in Oldham's imitation, many prosaic verses and bad rhymes, and his poem sets out with a strange inadvertent blunder. Though much concerned to leave, my dear old friend, I must, however, his design commend of fixing in the country. It is plain he was not going to leave his friend, his friend was going to leave him. A young lady at once corrected this with good critical sagacity to, though much concerned to lose, my dear old friend. There is one passage in the original better transfused by Oldham than by Johnson. Nil habet in felix papertas durius in se, quam quod ridiculos homines facit, which is an exquisite remark on the galling meanness and contempt annexed to poverty. Johnson's imitation is, of all the griefs that harass the distressed, sure the most bitter is a scornful jest. Oldham's, though less elegant, is more just. Nothing in poverty so ill is born as its exposing men to grinning scorn. Where or in what manner this poem was composed, I am sorry that I neglected to ascertain with precision from Johnson's own authority. He has marked upon his corrected copy of the first edition of it, written in 1738, and as it was published in the month of May in that year, it is evident that much time was not employed in preparing it for the press. The history of its publication I am enabled to give in a very satisfactory manner, and judging from myself and many of my friends, I trust that it will not be uninteresting to my readers. We may be certain, though it is not expressly named in the following letters to Mr. Cave in 1738, that they all relate to it. To Mr. Cave, Castle Street, Wednesday morning, no date, 1738. Sir, when I took the liberty of writing to you a few days ago, I did not expect a repetition of the same pleasure so soon. For a pleasure I shall always think it to converse in any manner with an ingenious and candid man. But having the enclosed poem in my hands to dispose of for the benefit of the author, of whose abilities I shall say nothing since I send you his performance, I believed I could not procure more advantageous terms from any person than from you, who have so much distinguished yourself by your generous encouragement of poetry, and whose judgment of that art nothing but your commendation of my trifle can give me any occasion to call in question. I do not doubt but you will look over this poem with another eye and reward it in a different manner from a mercenary bookseller who counts the lines he is to purchase and considers nothing but the bulk. I cannot help taking notice that besides what the author may hope for on account of his abilities, he has likewise another claim to your regard, as he lies at present under very disadvantageous circumstances of fortune. I beg, therefore, that you will favor me with a letter tomorrow, that I may know what you can afford to allow him, that he may either part with it to you, or find out, which I do not expect, some other way more to his satisfaction. I have only to add 
that as I am sensible I have transcribed it very coarsely, which, after having altered it, I was obliged to do, I will, if you please to transmit the sheets from the press, correct it for you, and take the trouble of altering any stroke of satire which you may dislike. By exerting on this occasion your usual generosity, you will not only encourage learning and relieve distress, but, though it be in comparison of the other motives of very small account, oblige in a very sensible manner, sir, your very humble servant, Sam Johnson. To Mr. Cave, Monday, Number 6, Castle Street. Sir, I am to return you thanks for the present you were so kind as to send by me, and to entreat that you will be pleased to inform me by the penny post whether you resolve to print the poem. If you please to send it me by the post with a note to Dodsley, I will go and read the lines to him that we may have his consent to put his name on the title page. As to the printing, if it can be set immediately about, I will be so much the author's friend as not to content myself with mere solicitations in his favor. I propose, if my calculation be near the truth, to engage for the reimbursement of all that you shall lose by an impression of five hundred, provided, as you very generously propose, that the profit, if any, be set aside for the author's use, excepting the present you made, which, if he be a gainer, it is fit he should repay. I beg that you will let one of your servants write an exact account of the expense of such an impression, and send it with the poem, that I may know what I engage for. I am very sensible, from your generosity on this occasion, of your regard to learning, even in its unhappiest state, and cannot but think such a temper deserving of the gratitude of those who suffer so often from a contrary disposition. I am, sir, your most humble servant, Sam Johnson. To Mr. Cave, no date. Sir, I waited on you to take the copy to Dodsley's, as I remember the number of lines which it contains, it will be no longer than Eugenio with the quotations, which must be subjoined at the bottom of the page. Part of the beauty of the performance, if any beauty be allowed it, consisting in adapting juveniles' sentiments to modern facts and persons, it will, with those additions, very conveniently make five sheets. And since the expense will be no more, I shall contentedly insure it, as I mentioned in my last. If it be not therefore gone to Dodsley's, I beg it may be sent to me by the penny post, that I may have it in the evening. I have composed a Greek epigram to Eliza, and think she ought to be celebrated in as many different languages as Louis Legrand. Pray send me word when you will begin upon the poem, for it is a long way to walk. I would leave my epigram, but have not daylight to transcribe it. I am, sir... Yours, etc., Sam Johnson. To Mr. Cave, no date. Sir, I am extremely obliged by your kind letter, and will not fail to attend you tomorrow with Irene, who looks upon you as one of her best friends. I was today with Mr. Dodsley, who declares very warmly in favor of the paper you sent him, which he desires to have a share in, it being, as he says, a creditable thing to be concerned in. I knew not what answer to make till I had consulted you, nor what to demand on the author's part, but am very willing that, if you please, he should have a part in it, as he will undoubtedly be more diligent to disperse and promote it. If you can send me word to-morrow what I shall say to him, I will settle matters, 
and bring the poem with me for the press, which, as the town empties, we cannot be too quick with. I am, sir, yours, etc., Sam Johnson. To us who have long known the manly force, bold spirit, and masterly versification of this poem, it is a matter of curiosity to observe the diffidence with which its author brought it forward into public notice, while he is so cautious as not to avow it to be his own production, and with what humility he offers to allow the printer to alter any stroke of satire which he might dislike. That any such alteration was made we do not know. If we did, we could not but feel an indignant regret. But how painful is it to see that a writer of such vigorous powers of mind was actually in such distress that the small profit which so short a poem, however excellent, could yield, was courted as a relief. End of section 9. Recorded by Michael Yorshaw, Los Angeles, California.